and turn it up to 10. Sort of like a bad habit, we gon' do it again. Ready or not, we're gonna tap some ends. Go tell a 36, try to grab all the friends. We're back like we never left. On track like a treble clef. Skip a beat on the seventh rest. Bring feast, we don't pass them over. We got the first fruits, no way to show us. This yoke is easy, this burns light. Even with a loud mouth trying to eat at the mic. Even if we down south, the humidity spike. Bales torn in two, so we gon' be all right. It's all grace till the half goes off. Heretics better run till the top blows off. Got them all stood still like a jaw full of Botox. Time to break them down like a jaw on a blow pop. Don't stop, they're in need of it though. Through grace, by faith, they could easily grow. New wave, new age, new way to see bro. Now one truth, life, one way to his throne. Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. This is Messiah Matters number 446. I got voicemail stacking up. My name is Caleb Hegg. And I can't wait to hear him. I'm Rob Van Hoff. Yep. And uh, we've been informed that the, the Van Hoff fan club is present in the chat room. Hey. There you go. I like it. I so like there's a lot, lot going on. We're not a news organization here, so we're not going to be talking about the war in Israel, but we will simply say that we are praying for all of the people there, especially the believers, uh, but all all the Israelis and uh, the atrocities that uh, are happening at the hands of the terrorists. Uh, you know, it's, it's shocking to me to see the support for terrorism from a nation oh, that has that has gone through repulsive uh, it's just yeah. repulsive you know the u.s has gone through uh terror attacks of their own uh and within our you know within my lifetime you know i i 
vividly, re- I think everybody, you know, it's a question that comes up several times a year. Where were you on September 11th? You know, what do you remember? You know, what were you doing? Uh, I, I have that conversation at least once, if not two or three times a year with, with various people. And, uh, you know, for something like that to happen in our lifetime and then to turn around, what, 20 some odd years later and uh, have people support the likes of terror attacks like that is absolutely repulsive to me. Uh, and I just I, 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 I think it shows I think it shows Calvinism. I, I think it shows the the uh, the sin nature and the darkness of the human heart and the the, con- the human condition uh, at, at its fullest. That's what we'll say about it. Uh, we're praying for everyone there. We have friends and and uh, and colleagues there that uh, we love very much, and so our prayers are with and, you. And don't forget that I I have to believe. I could be wrong, but I, I think I have to believe there are believers, even if there's just a few in Gaza, in Syria, in Lebanon that are stuck in a way, they're right. stuck geographically, they're stuck ideologically, and they're, yeah. they too are praying because they know they don't want to be identified with what's going on. Um, I yeah. could, I could be wrong in that, but I believe as, as uh, members, you know, of the Abrahamic covenant, we are to hold out a light. And we know that God pulls, you know, he has people in, in every nation, uh, you know, even if it's just a few. So I, I hope that's the case. And so I do pray that those people are um, also protected and they have a way to share and, and share the truth, you know, in, in that horrible situation. Absolutely. All right. We're going to move on from that. Um, and we're going to acknowledge the super chat, uh, in the chat room by love is bigger. Super just chat. Let's go. Let's, let's mix it up a little bit here. Weights and measures. <laughs> Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain stupid and incredibly self-centered you've been blessed question yes yes is there like like how unique are we this is not a like pump <laughs> caleb and rob up right now but i like like we laugh at ourselves right we laugh at the people with you know we there's laugh humor. at everyone god gave us humor i think you know and so are do other people like do kind of what we do like they talk about scripture talk about yeshua and also laugh at i have i've found self-deprecation to be one of the uh, funniest forms of comedy yeah yeah <laughs> in 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 my life and so i decided very early on that this show was going to involve self-deprecation uh, by the oh, way yeah. hey okay i we do have a lot to get to and i, I want to get to it really quickly <laughs> however i do have to acknowledge we went uh we went camping with some people well we didn't camp we we were in a very nice resort but there were people camping close to us that we went and saw check this out boom mm. nice yes all right now that i've showed off the new threads let's move we're going to move to a voicemail i didn't know i had that i uh, that i found this morning now this person uh, said that they wrote me an email. I do not believe I got this email. And so 
I want to make this very clear for people just so that you know, because this happens very, very often. I'll put my email address up here, chagatorresource.com. It is not, and I'm not saying this person did this, I don't know, but it is not chagatorresources.com. There oftentimes people will put an S at the end of Torah resource, and I don't get those emails. Now, I should probably make that an alias, but uh, I don't get those emails right now. So it is chagatorresource.com. Um, also, finding out that I have about 20 uh, voicemails in the backlog that I completely forgot about. You too can be in that backlog. 253-465-3205. Don't forget to visit uh, messiahmatters.com. You can find all sorts of stuff there. And then uh, including past shows and whatnot uh, and show notes. Finally, Torah Resource is the uh, producer of the show. Find all sorts of great stuff on Torah Resource. Um, and yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, let's bring this up, move this over, and here we go. This one, Rob has not heard this, has no clue this is coming. Uh, literally found this this morning, and uh, we're just going to go with it. My family has been following the biblical dietary laws since the beginning of 2009. I should say, he called and said, I wrote you an email, I haven't heard a response, I'll just read the email. So he's just reading his email, and I did clip this, so I clipped it quite a bit, try, try to, trying to take it down from three minutes down to a minute and 17, so here we go. My family has been following the biblical dietary laws since the beginning of 2009. For the most part, family and friends are more than willing to accommodate us. However, there are times when issues arise, especially hard when they occur with fellow Christians. For instance... I've explained numerous times to my mother-in-law and father-in-law, a retired LCMS pastor and chaplain, for dietary practice. Unfortunately, they seem to have selective memory. Last year, this is just one example, at a gathering where different types of sandwiches were present, she gave two of our kids ham sandwiches because, quote, she was pretty sure they were turkey, unquote. She goes out of her way to accommodate their cousin who can't have any gluten. I wondered at times if we should simply tell people we're allergic to pork, shellfish, etc. Seems that if you have a special diet due to food allergies, trying to lose weight, or manage a disease, some people will graciously accommodate you. If you tell those same people you're on a diet to honor God and to follow Jesus, it's not good enough. How can we handle this attitude with grace and love while also not allowing our family to be stepped on? How would you handle a scenario where you're having dinner at someone's house and they're preparing your chicken in the same pan they cook squirrel in? My sister-in-law is a Christian from Southeast Asia, and this is a reality. Okay, so there's a lot in this message that resonates with me. First of all, I'm in a lot of the same situation. Um, I have relatives that are not, they just don't get it. And uh, the selective memory has definitely been talked about in our household as well. And to a point where, you know, we have relatives who believe that uh, essentially children are king. If they say it, then it needs to be done. And we've been in certain places where We've said things like, you know, the kids will essentially be melting down or whatever because they're hungry and tired and whatnot. And, uh, you know, relatives will be trying to help and they'll be giving them things, you know, that we say, well, you know, that's actually not, we, I, I, I don't know if that's kosher. Hang on. Let me, let me check it. And they'll say things like, well, who cares? Come on. The kid's hungry. You know, like to them, it's that, that would super, that a child being hungry would supersede any religious idea that you have. Um, we've, 
I've also, so at restaurants, oftentimes I'll say that I, especially sushi restaurants, I'll say that I have a, a shellfish allergy. If you say that you, now, some might see that as deceitful, but the reason I say that is because there is a difference in preparation of food when you say that you have a shellfish allergy compared to when you say, hey, I don't eat eel, right? Um, they're going to, things are much different. As believers who keep dietary laws, you have to be very careful too. A lot of the time at Mexican restaurants, people don't know this. A lot of the time at Mexican restaurants, they'll deep fry their their chips in pork grease. Um, so oftentimes I'll say I'm vegetarian. I say that a lot when uh, when we're going over to new people's homes. You know, I'll just say, you know, I, I eat a vegetarian diet. Um, and usually that will that will help. When it comes to family members, I mean, I, I feel you, man. I think that uh, you just have to, you have to be vigilant. As a parent and yourself, you just have to be vigilant yourself for, for what is, you know, what is actually on the plate. And finally, the last thing I'll say before I kick this over to Rob is would I eat chicken that was uh, prepared in the same pan as squirrel? Well, this, I think probably a, an even more common scenario would be, you know, the bacon or the ham or something is cooked in a pan and then uh, the chicken is. I personally say, no, I will not eat that. Um, and once again, this comes back to personal preference. If, if people are passing stuff around, you know, and I know that that's happened, I'll just pass it on and I'll pass it on for my whole family. We'll just not eat it. And if people have a question, we'll just say, you know, well, you know, we don't, <laughs> we don't eat pork and it was, you know, I'll take people aside and tell them, but I'm not going to personally, I will, I would rather offend and keep God's commandments if it comes down to that. I'm not going to try to offend, right? I'm, I, I want to try very hard not to offend people. But if it comes down to offending someone or offending God, I'm going to offend the person. That's my personal opinion. Rob? Yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, like you said, I feel you. <laughs> you know, that I think a key word, Caleb, that you used was, is vigilance. Like if you're taking your family somewhere and and you're not sure, then just let the host or hostess know we're, we're bringing, we're bringing food. We'll contribute, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's been something we've done. And then it was like, okay, what did we bring? Okay. We brought that. And then we just, you know, if there's if it's not a pot, involved, look, if it, if it's not a potluck, then as a good guest, you should ask, Hey, what can I, what are you making so that I can know what to bring? That's it. Right. I mean, we yeah. ask that every time. And, and I like also what you said about like a way, if you're at a restaurant to translate it into a shorthand that transfers the vigilance to the preppers, to the cooks, to those prepping. If you, if you put it in terms of, of, uh, shellfish fish allergy or whatever you said, or like vegetarian or gluten, you know, whatever they, that ups their, like they already are programmed to deal with a certain level of, of they treat it as kind of urgency, right? It's an, it's an importance and they're going to, they're going to, uh, apply some protective elements, hopefully. Right now you can't go back and I need to watch the chef (laughs) prepare this. I think that would be 
you know, that's something you got to decide, you know, if you're that worried, I would say, don't go to the restaurant, you know? Right. Um, on the other hand, I know, you know, I was talking to a restaurant owner in Jerusalem who happened to be a believer and Jewish believer. And she had the, the local rabbinic, uh, stamp of approval on her restaurant. But, she, but she told me it's just, she said, it's, this is like, it's kind of a, you know, a, a scam. Like yeah. she said, a rabbi might come in once a month. She says, oh, he goes back, a- he opens the fridge, looks, closes it, signs off and leaves. And then she pays her due. She pays her fee. She told me, she's like, I could have, I could have like pork chops wrapped up in the back of the fridge. Not that she would, but the idea was they would never know the difference. It's worse so, in America. It's worse in America. It, my uncle, who owns a a dessert business, said that the that the guy came in, the rabbi came in. This was you know years ago. Came in, looked at all of his ingredients and everything, gave him a bill. Once a year, that rabbi calls up and says, "Have you changed any ingredients?" And if he says yes, he'll say, "What are the ingredients?" He'll get a list. He'll see if they're kosher or not, and then he'll stamp them approved. He doesn't even walk in. And then send your check. Yep, send your money in. So we have to we have to see the full spectrum, and that's on the other side of this. Is like, okay, who's really responsible? Well, it's the head of the household, right? It's the head of the household is responsible, and so it's a difficult thing. I've had real uncomfortable, like big family Thanksgivings. Yeah. Maybe I've shared the story before where we had green beans, right? And then someone else bought it pot of green beans that had bacon in it. Right. And so, and it's, it's like separate things. And there's a, there was a, someone wrote, I don't know who wrote, you know, no pork in these beans and, and some guest who was there, not a family, direct family member guest, but he was like a Dutch reformed, like really prided. He's passed away now, gone to be with the Lord, but he, he was what they call triggered by the fact, like, why is this labeled no pork like that got on his radar and i started talking to him and he got up he was a piece like i'm not gonna answer a fool according to his folly or something like that this is at a thanksgiving, thanksgiving. dinner with like Isn't 25 where 30 people <laughs> uh, look and here, i talked here. to my parents afterwards i said i i'm so sorry and they're like oh no you didn't do it you know it wasn't you like <laughs> it's not your problem. So this kind of thing happens and it, it sucks, you know, I mean, cause like you said, we're not yeah. out to cause someone to stumble. It's not, that's not the purpose, right? The, but, but we're not out to just be people pleasers. Right. And then exactly. to, to put our making sure we're pleasing people above our conscience and the word of God. So, so, but be There's patient, the, you know, you're going to learn. It's a learning curve. You don't, you don't get it all right. Every time, you know, that's there's story after story that we could talk about. You know, my son, I have four children. My eldest son is probably the most vigilant about anything and everything when it comes to keeping <laughs> rules. It doesn't matter if it's a house rule, if it's a Torah rule, it doesn't matter. He's going to let everybody know. We went to a church one time. They gave the kids snacks, and the first snack that they tried to give him was gummies. And he was not, he knew better. Because well, gel- they often has have gelatin, gelatin in it. it. By the way, just a side note, somebody in the in the uh, chat room said, yeah, they, uh, Mexican restaurants usually fry their uh, refried beans in pig lard. Refried beans in general are, are fried in pig lard. 
Even so if you, you get them canned ask. from the store. Yeah, you got to ask. You got to get vegetarian refried beans. Anyway, not the point. My son then, he decided, he was younger, he was probably five at the time. He decided that since they tried to feed him something that was unkosher in the beginning, he wouldn't eat anything as a snack unless he was 100%. He wouldn't even eat their popcorn. He's like, nope, they might have put something on it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I think that no matter what, you're going to run into this kind of thing. You just got to be vigilant. That's all there is to it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, this one, so we're moving now into man-made tradition. And I think that the kosher laws, it might seem disconnected, but Rob's point about like the, ma the man-made like kosher stamp, I think that they're helpful at sometimes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not yeah. trying to down the kosher stamps. They are helpful. If I look at a, if I look at something and it's Union Orthodox, most of the time I'll say, okay, we know that that you know that's we're going to accept that. Um, but now we're going to hit hard on. <laughs> now we're going to hit hard on man-made tradition. Here we go. Hey, this is Justin Bowling, tour observer, and 42-year-old in Oklahoma been trying to figure out the deeper context about the 18 edicts of Shammai and how they relate to it being illegal for Jews to eat with Gentiles. I was curious, how long was it illegal? Did the Jerusalem Council have authority to repeal Shammai edicts made into law? Did everyone get the memo, like even the non-believing Jews, Pharisees, Sanhedrin, Zealots? Or did the Jerusalem Council mostly just have authority as elders in the fellowship of believers? And did they change the law? Or did they give Christian Jews permission to ignore that law? All right, thanks. There we go. So the 18 edicts of Shammai is now. Hmm. Rob, do you want to talk about that first? You go first. Yeah. The there is, I don't have the references right now, but there's there's place in rabbinic literature that says, and I, I haven't looked at it for a long time, so I might get some of the details, but paraphrase is that Shammai, there was a, the back backdrop is that there's disputes between two houses Hillel and Shammai. of rabbis, yeah. uh, the house of Hillel, the house of Shammai, and most of the time, House of Hillel has the kind of greater traction among the people, right? That they're, okay, we're going to... But House of Shammai has, um, you know, differing views on certain halakhic issues. Right. And and even in some of, like a footnote there is is on the laws concerning adultery or and and divorce that it seems that yeshua's opinion matches what we see in later rabbinic literature associated with the house of shammai things like that but there's this story it's in the lore of of a time where Beit shammai strong-armed a situation to enforce a bunch of their edicts and i think they even it says they even killed some pharisees or some of the house of hillel it's anyway, we, we just, it's, we really don't know what happened. We don't know what, we don't know if it was made up later and just to kind of, because ultimately in the, the overall tone of the Talmud is that the house of Shammai are more zealous and uh, strict and even like physically abusive. 
whereas the house of Hillel is more kind and patient. And, and so there's these overall characters, character sketches that are contrasted back and forth throughout the rabbinic literature. And it's, it's always like, be more like the house of Hillel and be less like the house of Shammai. So, um, with all that, it sounds like this, I think his name was Justin. He's taking this as historical fact right. that there were in fact 18 edicts that the house of Shammai enforced. Uh, so my opinion is a, I don't know if it's a fact or not. I don't know if it, if that is a part. <clears throat> there of we go. He said it first. He said it first. Storytelling. What's that? I said, you said it first. I, I let you go first so that I didn't say it for keep going. Yeah, I, I, I don't take it as, a, I mean, we just, we just don't have any information about it. And so if, if I'm going to take something that is uh, a part of rabbinic lore yeah. written way after the fact, and then try to say, well, I want to kind of make that a sharper picture than it actually is by using some sort of artificial thing, oh, this really happened. And then to import that or project that anachronistically back into the first century and then try to imagine a conversation or a cultural kind of context in which the Jerusalem council of Acts 15 is, is uh, like the historical circumstance of Acts 15 has this Shammai 18 edicts in the backdrop. That's, it's just not good method. It's, it's not how we learn things really. We, we need more. It, it's really not a uh, a feasible method or approach, in, in my opinion. Um, I think we need to understand Act, whatever Acts 15 means, we need to understand it on its own terms, according to the text and according to the scripture more broadly. And in my opinion, the canon of scripture provides all the all the core bits that we need to know to be confident about what the setting of Acts 15 is um, without having to comb through much later rabbinic lore to try to paint a backdrop to it. That's it. Is there something he asked that I missed or that I didn't touch on? No. Um, I Look, every time we talk about this, every time we talk about this, I get, I, I get in trouble by, from someone. Last time, so I did a whole video on this, uh, on in terms of Hillel and Shemai. I did a whole video on on this on uh, Pronomian.com, and I think that I made J.K. McGee's uh, head explode. Uh, he was so so offended. Um, and About what what happened? Well, so basically, I, you know, I have said on this show several times, and I've said and uh, in, in, in the video on Pronomian.com. I said I don't even know if I if I think that uh, the the uh, p the figures of Hillel and Shammai as they're put forward by the rabbinic lore are actual people. Now, were there Hillel and Shammai that that uh, existed in time? Uh, sure. Like I have no problem with there being a guy named Hillel and a guy named Shammai, but I personally believe that later rabbinics used these names Hillel and Shammai as um, as people or figures they can attach different beliefs to and so they can juxtapose the two beliefs and then hash out halakha from it like yeah, uh, yeah. rabbinical yeah. law from it i don't i don't think that like there i don't think that the stuff that is attributed to hillel ever was said by a guy named hillel 
And I don't think that the stuff attributed to Shammai was ever said by a guy named Shammai. So the idea that Shammai had these 18 edicts uh, in the first century, I think that's all lore. I think it's all made up. And I think it's made up so right. that later rabbis can, can then take those ideas and run with them. When I said that on pronomian.com, I mean, J.K. McGee, I, I think he blew a gasket. Like the, the notion was just so horrific. And how could I reject historic, you know, whatever. I, I, there's a whole series on, on pronomian.com. And the, the point is, is that even Jewish rabbis today, Neusner, I quote Neusner in that video. Um, and that's just one out of several. But even Jewish rabbis today will admit that the, that the pages of the Talmud and the Mishnah are constantly either stories are attributed to rabbis that that uh, we know they didn't say them. They're they're attributed to multiple rabbis. Their uh, things are are made up. Stories are made up, and they they do that. It's not malicious. It's not that the rabbis are thinking, how can we trick the people today? Ha 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 ha. No, what they're doing is they're trying to say, how do we retain our tradition? And, and uh, they do that by attributing it to someone that was a very long time ago so that they can say, see, we had it first, uh, especially against Christianity, right? It's especially like, it's like, it's like uh, was it George Washington and the cherry tree story? I cannot tell a lie. I did not, or, or I did cut down the cherry tree. There's a story of like, George right. Washington's character. Well, scholars say this never happened, but there's lore in, uh, about someone who lived 250 plus years ago or whatever, who's a hero, national hero, the first president. He was he was commander of the Continental Army. He was an amazing man of right. like of accomplishment. And what they have is a children's story about honesty to your parents. And so what do they do? They're like, well, there's this, you know, when George Washington was a, was a young boy, right? his dad saw that the cherry tree had been cut down and he asked him and, 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 so, but then people are like, oh, did this really happen? So am I a heretic, a heretic? Because I say, well, it probably most likely never happened. We see this with we villains look at too. When was the earliest time the story was told was probably a hundred or 150 years after George Washington's life, but it was told for kids to make a point about character, about honesty, and, right. and about dealing in truth with your parents and not covering up, even if you're, it's going to cost you because you did something wrong. You know, that's the point of the story. Not that George Washington actually, this is part of his biography. You know, uh, it, and, by the way, it should it should definitely be noted. It should be noted that there are great scholars who totally disagree with us. Instone Brewery is probably the the uh, the the pinnacle of uh, yeah, disagreement. Exactly. On yeah, us. it's fair to yeah his Trent uh, series. He tries to argue. He goes at great lengths to argue that the rabbinic, the core of the Mishnah or the core rabbinic tradition, is before the destruction of the temple. Right, and he has various ways. But the point is, you there's. I disagree with his methodology. I disagree with his method methodology in total. Not the point. You know what Rob was saying that we have these ideas of lore. You know, I I was recently uh, just doing a very quick surface study of Billy the Kid, and it's interesting that Billy the Kid became such that you know he died at 21 years old. He but he was the, he's this figure in American history of this outlaw who, you know, he did all these things and blah blah blah. And sure, he, you know, we know that he killed. X amount of people, and then there's lore that he might have killed this many people, right? But 
ultimately, if you do any kind of study into Billy the Kid, the, there's been all these adaptations, you know, and all these folklore around who this person is. And they, he's been built into this thing that he probably wasn't. He was probably a low-life roofian who went around and killed some people. And ultimately, he's been turned into this, like, folk hero of a villain, right? And so we have all these things that can be attributed to Billy the Kid in folklore, but when you really look at the evidence, it's not really there. Well, why is that? It's the same thing with a lot of the rabbinic literature. They have this kind of folklore idea of, of these things that they need to teach, these things that they want to make laws out of, all these kind of things. Well, how do we have two opposite polar views that we can pull from to show the right and the wrong? In my opinion, what they did was they said, Hillel and Shammai, well, just Hillel and Shammai are these two houses they warred in the first century. And the thing is, is that... There's perfect example, I think, of a response to Christianity. And a perfect example of this is, well, Hillel said, don't do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and Jesus just took Hillel's teaching and he turned it yeah. around. Yeah. That's nonsense. That's total nonsense. They just wanted to say that, that Judaism had it before Christianity. The golden rule was made by Yeshua. There's no evidence that it was prior to Yeshua. There's no written evidence that, you, that, any, that Yeshua was pulling it from anywhere. That's the words of our Messiah. So don't let anybody steal it from you. It's not that Hillel was, was there first saying it. That, that's nonsense. There's no evidence of that. And so th these are the kind of things that, that I look at and I think this, you know, and here's the thing, and this is not a dig necessarily on anyone in the Messianic realm, but Messianic Judaism tends to think that all things Jewish are great. If it's Jewish, it's got to be good. And so, what, so within the Messianic movement, there has been a... Well, of course, the, the mission and the Talmud were around in the first century. Why? Because Judaism says it was. Nonsense. It's total nonsense. So, I mean, let's go back to the initial question uh, by, by our friends here. I mean, the answer that I would say is, no, I don't think that Judaism even knew about Shammai in terms of these rulings. With that said, there was certainly, now we can get into a different realm, there was certainly a tradition in the first century that Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. And we know this because Jubilees specifically says that, and uh, so does the well, scriptures. Acts 10, Peter yeah, tells him, you know that it is, that it is uh, exactly. not, it's kind of, it's not the word not lawful. What you have to look at that Acts 10. He doesn't say it's not, it, that it's contrary to the Torah of Moses. Right. He doesn't say that. Yep. He says it's generally not, you know, it's it's not lawful. So let, a, let's uh, take you know, for a Jew to eat with a let's Gentile. take that then. Let's take that. We know that this is a tradition because the scriptures say so in Acts 10. When the Jerusalem Council comes along, did the rest of Judaism get the memo? And the answer is no. I don't believe they did. And the reason why is because even to I don't know how much uh, how much uh, people have seen our past shows. There was a time, I don't know, maybe eight, nine years ago, I had an online debate, and not like a formal debate, but a back and forth of blog posts with a guy named the, the college rabbi or the university rabbi or something like that. And basically, he goes around to different uh, universities and, and uh, acts as the rabbi for the Jewish community of, of college students. And... So we were talking about, you know, uh, 
me as a Messianic Jew and, and all these things. And basically what was going on is I had said that I think that Christians are more receptive to people they disagree with than Jews are. And he took v great offense at this. And I said to him, I'll tell you what, the next time you're in the Seattle area, you let me know, you can come out this, at, at the time, we were completely Shomer, Shomer kosher, okay? We had no meat in our house whatsoever. My, my wife and I had both uh, gone on a, a, a strictly pescatarian diet. We had been on that diet for years. I said to him, look, come over to my house and we, and, and, uh, for Arab Shabbat, I have a Shomer kosher kitchen. We'll, we'll have Shabbat with you. And you know, we can interact about these things. The comments from other Jews show that this, that they didn't get the memo even up until our day. And the reason why is because they, they said, you can't eat with him. What if he prays over the wine to Jesus in the next room? What if he, you know, what if he says a blessing over his entire kitchen to Jesus before you come over? You can't do that. You cannot eat with a Gentile. That's what they said. And ultimately the, uh, it was, re you know, the offer was rejected. The offer was rejected to come over to my house for Arab Shabbat. And that proved my point, that he, that he was less receptive to someone who disagreed with him. He can't even sit down and have a meal with me. So anyway, um, I don't think they got the memo. I think that, that when we look at Acts 15, when we, even when we're looking at Acts 10, we're seeing the shift. But believers are coming to the understanding that the nations will come, that God's house will be a house of prayer for all nations, right? This is the main shift. In fact, in, in Acts 21, what happens? Uh, uh, Paul stands up in front of the people at the temple and he's preaching, right? He's preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. They have no problem with it until he says, and the Gentiles are part of this. And then they say, this man should be killed. So the idea that the Gentiles would be included in the covenants is really the reason that Christianity, I think, is, uh, I mean, obviously, Christ is the reason, but the idea that Christ would bring Gentiles into the covenant, this is what is completely rejected. Like we certainly cannot accept this man as a, as a, as a Messiah, if he's going to say that the Gentiles are included in our covenant, that's not going to work. So I think that this issue is the core issue of the, of, of the new Testament that we see all the nations coming in and particularly in Galatians, right? The book of Galatians is centered on this specifically. That's my belief. So I hope that answers the question. All right. Anything else before we move on to the next one? Yep. Let's, let's, let's move on. Uh, let me check the chat room really quick. Okay. Uh, here we go. This I had to cut down from uh, uh, quite a bit as well. So I, I think you're going to get the entire idea of this, but uh, we're just going to go with it. And if not, I'll try to fill in gaps. I just had a question about tradition. Um, and I know uh, some of the larger passages, Matthew 15, Mark 7, you know, even though they're, you know, it's, it's Yeshua basically just, just speaking against tradition and stuff. But um, we found our, my family and I have found ourselves kind of in, a, in, a, in an area, uh, in an Anabaptist realm. And if you're not familiar with them, uh, yeah. Uh, Mennonite Amish type of thing. These are these are probably what you would call somewhat liberal Mennonites that we've been with now for a couple of years. I want to pause real quick. If you are not aware, and I will expand on this gentleman's uh, explanation here. If you're not aware, the Mennonites are as 
vast of a denomination, if we could even, I don't, I don't think we can call it a denomination, but even a, a movement or whatever you want to say as the Hebrew Roots Movement. In other words, it's going to be totally different from one community and one place in geographically to 10 miles down the road in a different one, right? They're going to have different rules. They're going to have different uh, ways that they worship. They're going to have different theologies, okay? Now, there is a lot of the same thread that goes in between the Amish and the Mennonite. And for those who don't know, the tradition of the Amish and the and the Mennonites go all the way back to the 1500s and the Anabaptists. If you ever wonder where the Anabaptists went, guess what? They're right here. They're, they're the Amish and the, and the Mennonites. They came to America uh, because of persecution and, and this is, and they have stayed here. Um, so, but it, when he said, I, I don't know what he means by liberal Mennonite, but I think I think what he means is they probably have some cell phones. They probably use, uh, they might have some cars. Uh, they might uh, use, they probably use electricity, probably no internet, but maybe uh, somebody in the community has uh, a line to the internet to be able to, you know, uh, check things or download things, things like this. That's what I think he means by liberal Mennonite. I don't think he means liberal in terms of like theologically they're, they're moving towards anything that you and I would think of as liberal, especially living in, in the Seattle area. I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about more modern technologies and things like that. There's not a, as big of a push, especially in the Mennonite movement as opposed to the Amish. The Amish are going to shun all uh, forms of, of technology like that, whereas the Mennonites are not. And the liberal Mennonites, according to my understanding at least, are going to be much more forgiving when it comes to that kind of stuff. Let's keep going. Um, and we, you know, there, there's, there's just some things that, that I would have questions with um, that I brought up. First of all, we are what, what I guess you, call, you guys would call Torah observant. And uh, um, we've made that very, very clear with, uh, with, you know, some of the pastors and bishops that they have. And it's not gone over too well, <laughs> to say the least. And, uh, uh, but there are, there are some that have just said, you know, as long as you don't tell us to do these things, you're okay. And so, um, but there's this heavy tradition that, that, you know, that we've kind of come against. I mean, I'm around people that say, if you don't wear, if you don't wear black socks to church, you're, you're going to have a talking to by the bishop. Okay. Or if your hair is not parted down the middle, uh, you know, you could be ostracized. Uh, if you're not wearing suspenders, uh, you know, and I hate to sound like I'm like I'm complaining against people, but this stuff, is, in my opinion, just puts people under bondage. And, and I, you know, trying to show people that is very, very difficult when you have people growing up in cultures and traditions for years. Okay, so he goes on. <clears throat> he asked for a book that possibly might look at Pharisaic law in the first century um, and and the, how Yeshua and all that was, and the apostles were combating that. I don't think that you have a book in the first, you know, on Pharisaic law in the first century. Everybody's going to point to the mission in the Talmud, um, and those are much later. So I, I think you're you're going to be at a loss there. The the closest you're going to come to is probably E. P. Sanders in his book on Judaisms. Now E. P. Sanders pulls significantly from the rabbinic literature itself. Um, so anyway, I think I think you're you're going to be at a loss. What you're talking about here, though, is a very uh, interesting issue, and the reason why is because. 
that the Mennonites and the Amish have maintained their culture and their traditions throughout history through, since they came to America by holding to a specific standard. That standard is not necessarily biblical. Some of it is, don't get me wrong, some of it is. And, and we see, uh, we see their, their uh, want to maintain the biblical truth as well. However, the reason that their culture maintains in the United States is because they're a lot like the, the Hasidic Jews, whereas they have insulated themselves into these communities. They have said, if you don't do it our way, then you need to leave, right? They shun people or whatever. If they're, if they're not going to maintain the cultural uh, norms that they want to see within their, within their uh, communities. When we speak about that, this is, I think that this is actually, now they're not, go, they're not going to split these two apart, right? They're going to see their, their cultural heritage and their cultural laws as on par with the biblical laws. In this, I would say, is not only dangerous, but I think it's wrong and I think it's unbiblical. Okay, to, to say that our cultural laws are on par with God's law, that I think is unbiblical. I think that it, uh, and I think that the scriptures speak against that. With that said, I'm also, I got to be careful here on the, and the reason why is because I feel uh, sympathetic to the, the leaders of the Amish and the Mennonite communities because they desperate, and even the Hasidic communities. And I think everybody knows my feeling. Who watches this show knows my feelings on Hasidic uh, Judaism and the uh, the uh, the Kabbalistic beliefs that come with it. So I'm not advocating for their theology. However, when I look at the when I look at the Hasidic communities, one of the things that I look at and see is okay, they are attempting to. Now we could talk about how they've possibly become cult esque, you know, and they might be cults with their zadiks and all that kind of thing. But they're trying to maintain something that, and they've insulated themselves in a way that the outside world cannot, or has not been able to thus far infiltrate that. Things uh, like uh, the internet and things have have uh, affected us, whether we want to admit it or not. So I'm sympathetic towards those things. When I there was a great video, I'll find the video and, and mention it before uh, the end of the show. But uh, you know, when I look at like the Mennonites and, and the and the Amish, it, it's almost mind blowing to me that they've been able to maintain this cultural identity, and the only way that they've been able to do that is through their cultural traditions. Now, once again, I think that uh, so. I'll finish talking here so that Rob can can jump in and give his uh, his comments as well. I think that uh, I think what you're feeling is is natural to say when someone places tradition on par with scripture, I think it's wrong. And I think that that needs to be fought against. With that said, I also believe that you're coming into a community that has been maintaining cultural tradition for uh, 500 years, and you're going to have a difficult time uh, trying to have those conversations. I don't know if you're going to be able to overcome those, you know, those kind of obstacles in a community like that. Should you? Uh, well, I think that having a conversation about man-made tradition as opposed to what God has told us to do is always a beneficial conversation uh, if people will listen. But I think that you're going to get kicked out of the community for it. That might not, that shouldn't matter necessarily. I don't know if that should matter. But if you're not going to uh, keep the cultural tradition as well, it would not surprise me if the Mennonites say, sorry, it's time to leave. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I mean, this issue is at the heart of what they call the parting of the ways, which really was not really parting. It's more way more complicated than that. But 
the reason the early followers of Yeshua were rejected and why, quote, Christianity or whatever was was uh, persecuted people for the first couple centuries was not because they were advocating um, abolition of the Mosaic law. Now, there might have been some groups that on the margins that that were uninformed fully, you know, they're Gentiles and they're trying to make sense of, of things. And we have record of that, but overall, I mean, even in the, the book of acts, right. I mean, if, if we look at Paul's lifetime as it is in scripture, the issue of, of the difficulty is, well, you could say unbelief and God's sovereign, um, you know, keep people blind, right. Having eyes, they cannot see having ears, they cannot hear, et cetera. But also, people such as the Acts 10, you had a, the strength that tradition had in creating expectations of what is right and wrong that was out of sync with the actual scripture and without, you know, out of sync with the Torah and the prophets, but yet was taken to be at the same level. I mean, like, like the caller mentions. Matthew 15, Acts 7, just like Caleb saying, putting the tradition on the same par. I think one crucial discernment we need to recognize and, and accept as Yeshua teaches us, those have to be different file folders in your in your brain. Right? The file folder on your computer screen if you, of your brain. Like there's a file folder that is the word of God, and there's a separate file folder that is the traditions of men. And once once you put all those in the same file or in the same folder it gets more and more difficult to differentiate them. But also well, back to the more recent stuff, there are, you know, I've walked a couple different times through Mea Sherim in Jerusalem, which is an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood. And it's, you know, they're basically, some of them are dressed as if it's, as if it's like 18th century Eastern Europe, right? right? If you just, if you took a snapshot, it's like, wow, like they're living... And they speak Yiddish, right? There's no, they live in a nation that doesn't speak Yiddish. Hebrew's the, you know, Hebrew, there's Arabic, there's English, but Yiddish, why are they holding on to Yiddish? It's a German uh, hybrid, right? It's a hybrid of, of German and some Russian and, and using Hebrew letters, you know, to try to, because to them it has, that's why they call it Yiddishkeit. Right, Yiddishkeit is is it's like what is that? It's your Jewish soul. Well, what does right. that mean? If you push it all the way, it means oh, it's like the the Eastern European Jews. It's their lifestyle, you know. Um, from whence we have the Baalei Shem and things like this, you know, and all the folklore of the 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 Rebbe's and all these things. If you look at uh, and, and so that they feel like they are transgressing or dishonoring their ancestors if they right. would change. Like they're especially in on the wake of the Holocaust. Right. It would. It's like I would be. It's almost like sacrilegious idea that you would accept some sort of new culture in the post-Holocaust world that would somehow undermine preserving the memory right 
of who we truly are. And that's, it's, you, it, you can't get much deeper in terms of like a human feeling really ingrained in a tradition, in a sense of people, in a sense of belonging of who I am and who my people are and what we stand for. And, and we have a sense of safety. And even if the world's crazy, we know that we have our, our, who we are. And to this tension is not new. If you look at how many people have probably seen the fiddler on the roof tradition, right? Masora. <laughs> okay. Well, that was written by Sholem Aleichem right at the end of the 19th century, talking about the very thing. It's written in Yiddish, which had already died out, but he's writing it in Yiddish. And it's it's the story of that Eastern European situation where you have the breakup, where you have, they are unable to retain their tradition. It's not the word of God that they're fighting for. Right, it's 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 with the right. in the story of the fiddler on the roof of Tevye, the milkman. Right, it's it's the rabbinic uh, kind of uh, governed little village that they're shtetl that they're trying to preserve, and all this the winds of the world are happening. You now there's the the enlightenment. There's Jews can now be free to go and study at a Women university. Women can choose their husbands. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, arranged marriages or not, and all this kind of stuff. And you have the weakening of the, it's a, I mean, that's what he's, Sholem Aleichem is doing. He's like showing the weakening of the rabbinic authority and how the modern world is coming. And and there's no way, how do they survive? Plus you have the host, hostility of foreign peoples that are, that don't like them. You know, I think they're presented as Christian or whatever, but, or Russian, but the overall idea, though, is if you look at the Amish, the Amish are in a situation where they're not, you know, they they have to integrate, you know, some sort of modern life, you know, I'm sure, um, but they but they try to watch the edges. But when you have like you have to comb your hair a certain way, or you have to wear black socks and stuff like this, you're getting into it's like a superstitious kind of um, concern, which which makes me feel like it feels like there's an anxiety about what is real, about what is what is actually the word of God, and it feels like the word of God has been decent. It had been like they elbowed it out to try to put forth a, a tradition, um, and so you know I. It's okay. I think it's okay for a community to advocate uniformity in certain things. You know, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's okay. Um, when it comes to, you know, hairstyles or colors of clothing that's acceptable or what kind of shoes you can wear, that is paralleling exactly what's happening among the ultra Orthodox in Israel. You know, I like the, this, these, these are your clothing options. These are the colors which is no color, right? Black and white. Um, this is the way, this is the kind of kippah you're going to wear. Right. Right. You know, it's not, a, you're not going to wear a colored knit kippah with the star of David on it. Right. If you, you're, that's, that would be, you'd see that among a national religious. So you'll see like a soldier praying, let's say they've pictures now recently, a soldier, he's got his, his assault rifle. He's in his khakis, but he's, he's praying, 
right? And he's got a knit kippah, right? So that's a that's a different picture of a modern Jew than the ultra orthodox, which are not. There's no way they're going to pick up a weapon. Right. They're wearing black long sleeve jackets, you know. Um, they're going to not. They're not going to have a knit kippah, right? Because some of those aren't, they're indifferent to the state, or some of them are anti-state of Israel. I mean, to the point right. that some of the, like the Neturei Karta, they're so, they are so anti-tradition that they're anti-Zionist, or anti, right. uh, sorry, anti-modern world. That they're anti-Zionist. I misspoke. They're so anti-anything new. They are so rooted in their mind in, in 18th century Eastern Europe that they reject any new thing. That means the state of Israel, they reject Zion, the whole state of Israel, they reject. So right. the reason they reject it is not the same reason why Hamas rejects it. That's why the Neturei Karta are accused of like being self-hating Jews, right? Or suicidal Jews because, but you'll see these guys and they'll have pro-Palestinian flags, but they look like a the rabbis, you know, with the payas and all this stuff. It's like, what? And this is the, all this is because people have tradition and the word of God mixed up. Um, I kind of went That's off okay. there, but it's in those groups that solidarity matters. You know who belongs by what kind of kippah they wear and how they wear it. What kind of tzitzit do they have to hell it in their tzitzit? Do they, do their tzitzit show or not? Right. Are they wearing the right kind of clothes? You know, are they speaking the right kind of language? Are they speaking Yiddish? All these things are markers of belonging. And I think Paul would call them works of the law, right? Things that people cling to, to show solidarity with the group that are not based on the Torah of Moses, but they're based on some sort of religious authority that kind of is attached to the Torah of Moses, but ha really has special community rules that are put at the same level. Yeah. Ultimately, I think that coming back to the, to the question at hand, I think you're going to have a really hard time attempting to like, I, I think that conversations are always good. And so I, I don't think that there's anything wrong if you go in lovingly saying, Hey, you know, I don't think that these traditions should be on the same part as, as, uh, the laws of God. Um, however, I think that there, I think there does need to be a respect. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere with the Amish or the Mennonites or the Hasidic Jews if you don't have some form of respect for the cultural traditions that they are attempting to maintain. So, so while you might see it as bondage, uh, and I, I understand why you would see that. I, I understand why you'd feel that. Uh, but I think that the people that you're talking about and talking to they see them as their heritage. I, you know, I was, I, I'm in a class right now and my teacher was uh, speaking today about how uh, he asks his students often how, uh, if, if they can name their grandparents' first and last names, their great-grandparents' first and last names. Can you name your great-grandparents' first and last names? He said that less than 30% usually of his classes can name all of their great grandparents, first and last names. And, um, so he, and he was talking about a written record 
right? Like journals and how important journals can be and how we should talk and write about uh, our conversions, our, our coming to Christ, and, and so that our great-grandchildren and generations to come can, can have record of this, because it does mean something to us to be able to look back at, at, at this. Well, I think that it's the same kind of thing with the the Mennonite and the Amish and these traditions that they have. They're holding on to something. They might not be able to name the first and last name of their great-great-grandparents either, or their great-grandparents, but they have these traditions, and they know that their great-grandparents did these same traditions. And so I think you're going to have a uphill battle trying to uh, reform these things. Now, I said I, I was going to mention a video. I am going to mention a video. There is a video... Um, so Peter Santanello is a very well-known YouTuber. He does all sorts of documentaries. Some of them are extremely good. Some of them are things that should certainly not be watched around children. Um, but he did one recently, uh, that I found to be very, very interesting. And actually it turned into a three-part series and the three-part series, it, uh, started with one called a man with no legal identity off, uh, off the grid in Appalachia. And he talks to, a man named Titus Morris. Titus Morris is, uh, he is not Mennonite himself. However, he is a street evangelist. He lives in a Mennonite community. He uh, dresses like the Mennonites. He, his faith seems to be very much like the Mennonites. Um, he, uh, Santinello did another uh, video called Revisiting Titus. And then his third video is Hitchhiking to... Um, hitchhiking to uh, Tennessee or some, Nashville with uh, Titus Morris. And uh, after I watched this, uh, this series that he did, I started following Titus Morris, uh, who doesn't have any technology himself except for a phone, but other people post his sermons and things like this. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's inspiring. You can tell that his faith is very, uh, his faith is very pure in terms of it's, it's very genuine. It's just very genuine faith, and it's inspiring to see. You know, his his testimony and the way, you know, he keeps a Saturday Sabbath, and he's he's just very, you know, he, he believes fully in what, in what he uh, is preaching, and uh, I've found Titus to be very uh, uplifting uh, for me personally, but he's also outside a little bit of the community because he's not actually part of the Mennonites, but he's sympathetic to them. So I... I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful to anyone, but I, I highly recommend that series. It's uh, it's going to take you three hours to get through the whole thing. That's how long it is. But uh, if you have the time, I, I recommend it. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Once again, prayers for Israel and the people there. Uh, we've been praying daily and uh, sometimes hourly for the the people, the nation of Israel, and the people there and the believers there. And so keep them in your prayers. Um, yes, please give us a call. 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. If you have left a message in the past three months and we haven't gotten to it, I apologize. It might be coming up soon. You never can tell. You can also write us emails. Cheg at TorahResource.com, C-H-E-G-G at TorahResource.com. We will be next, we will be back actually on Friday with a uh, Mystery Bible Theater 3000. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, you know why. Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.